This morning we will be in First uh, Samuel. This is not Sunday school. If you've been with us for Sunday school, we've been in First Samuel for the last uh, several weeks. But I felt that this passage of Scripture was um, very important to what we're studying in the book of, of Daniel this morning. Or in the book of Daniel as we've been studying on Sunday mornings. In the last few weeks we've heard about uh, Daniel and his dealings with Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, in Sunday school, we've we've read and learned about the rise and fall of kings and the inauguration of what you would call the Israelite monarchy. And the ideas of kings and kingdoms have been present for millennia at this point. In fact, today, this week, even we hear reports of the coronation of of King Charles, the heir to the throne of the now deceased Queen Elizabeth. It would seem that in our enlightened society we would have jettisoned this idea of kings and kingdoms. At least least this may be what comes to mind in our American minds. Why not have governments that are by the people and for the people we may think? If only this system were enacted and implemented in a perfect way, we would achieve harmony and success as a nation. And when we think about these ideas, and as we continue to move forward in Sunday morning through the book of Daniel, who deals with this Babylonian king who, um, in particular, is pretty ruthless and really, in my opinion, crazy, like the man seems deranged. And as we think about what we're about to move into in the coming year with a presidential election, I think what what uh, 1 Samuel says here uh, will really shed some light on it. But understand this, I mention all of these things about these political things and all that. That's really not what we're trying to talk about today. Although they're related, the sermon is much more about the people of Israel and their disposition uh, towards the Lord. So as we consider this, we're going to look at four main ideas this morning. Uh, one being the clouds that are on the horizon. Two, what is right in our own eyes. Three, the rejection of the true King. And four, Christ, the King of Kings. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to sit in Your house and before Your Word. We pray that You would be exalted in our worship today. And that no matter what is going on internally within any of us, I pray that You would help us to have humble hearts ready, willing to hear the truth of Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would protect this time. That You would help us to hold it in our hearts as a sacred thing to hear God's Word. Lord, I pray that You would protect me from saying vain and foolish things. And I pray that You would be exalted by the preaching of Your Word this morning. Help us with it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you will stand in the reading of 1 Samuel chapter 8. The first nine verses. I'm going to be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is an update of the New American Standard. So if you're an ESV, you're going to have a little bit of trouble. Chapter, verse one, chapter eight. This is the word of the Lord. And it happened when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after greedy gain and took bribes 
and cause justice to turn aside. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. So now, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly testify to them and say to them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. This is the word of the Lord. Here we read of the inauguration, the the looming inauguration of the Israelite monarchy. Something on the mind if you watched any of the news in the last week. You may not care anything about that. I personally don't, but I'm aware it's happening. But right here is the beginnings of something that will shape all of Old Testament history. And even shapes our understanding as Christians today. And as we begin in the text, jumping right in, we think about the looming clouds that are on the horizon. We are at once confronted with what would have been seen as an impending catastrophe for the people of Israel. We have Samuel who is largely considered a faithful judge nearing the end of his life. And the question always comes, who's going to take his place? And Samuel, anticipating his coming death, and placed his sons Abijah and Joel as those who would take his place. Yet, um, like his predecessor Eli, Samuel's sons were unrighteous. The text says in verse 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons brought shame upon his house with their actions. And if you have studied Samuel before, it is almost as if 1 Samuel is repeating itself as this story, as chapter 8 reads exactly like the story in chapter 2 through 4 of Eli and his sons. We may think that, Samuel, did you not learn from your predecessor? Did you not learn from this man who you were with for so long? Isn't this not a good idea that this is what we're going to do? And with that in mind, I want to take a look back. And if you if you haven't studied Samuel before, this will give you just a little bit of context. Turn to chapter 3, if you would, for just a moment. In verse 27. Actually, chapter 2. Wrong text. Chapter 2, verse 27. Then a man from God, man of God, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Did I not indeed 
reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt enslaved into Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests and to go up to my altar and to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my habitation? And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choices of everything of my people Israel. Therefore Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I did indeed say that your house and your house of your father should walk before me forever, but now Yahweh declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be cursed. Behold, the days are coming, and I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will be no old man in your house. And you will look upon the distress of my habitation in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house all the days. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours my altar, from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the, in, the increase of your house will be put to death in the prime of life. Now this will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas. On that day, both of them will be put to death. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all that is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him a faithful house, and he will walk before my anointed ways. What we read there is just a small excerpt of the God of Israel pronouncing His judgment on Eli's house because his sons and he himself were unrighteous. And that was the result. Much death. Much suffering. Why didn't Samuel see this before him? You may ask. Here, the charges of Eli are set before him. He has honored his sons over the Lord. And the result is death and the indictment of his house. The ending of it. Notice also that Samuel here, right at the very beginning, in the first three verses, that he has done something that no other judge, you have all of these judges in the book of Judges and up to this point, that no other judge had ever done before. He had set his sons in the place of judge to be his successors. And actually, if you go back and you read the story of Gideon, the people of Israel actually asked if Gideon's sons would take his place. And he said, no. But the Lord your God shall rule over you. And if you think about it, if you think about it, Samuel was even proof that the best determiner for who would take another office was not his descendants, but the Lord himself. It was Samuel who took the place of the sons of Eli. And considering all of this, it seems that Israel has found itself in a precarious position. They can see the cloud on the horizon. If Samuel dies, we're going to have some real corruption on our hands. So what do we do? Brothers, what do we do? What do we do? Let's, let's move forward. This brings us to point number two, what is right in our own eyes. The elders seeing how things are going, 
Seeing all of this stuff that's about to happen, we have a couple of guys who Samuel was a faithful judge. He did what was right. The people of Israel, he was a respected person. There's not really any um, biblical evidence to say anything very much negative. We can imply things. We can think, okay, was well, Samuel a derelict father? We can do all of those things. But the Bible doesn't really ever condemn Samuel. There's not too many things that are said negatively about the man. I don't think if any explicitly. And the elders are like, well, we like Samuel, but we see all these people, these sons who are doing all these things. They're not following in his footsteps. What do we do? Brothers, what do we do? And the elders of Israel come and they bring this request. The request that they come to Samuel with was not one that was going to bring, that, that brought Samuel comfort. We can see that by his reaction. But it brought him terror. The elders came to Samuel and make the request that may not seem very significant in our eyes. Give us the king like the nations. Seeing the unrighteousness of Samuel's sons, isn't this just what we should do? Things are not looking great, so let's figure this out, right? Let's think. Okay, the nations around us have this in place. They don't have judges, but they do have this hereditary monarchy. They have this line of secession. So maybe if we we blend what these nations do and what we're kind of starting to do, maybe this is going to make it work, right? Maybe after this, we'll be able to defeat all of the nations that are around us that are imposing themselves upon us. Maybe if that's the case, we can do it. And, you know, if Samuel was a pragmatic thinker, if he was thinking about, well, this is pretty practical. Yeah, my sons are not doing very great, so why don't we come up with something, right? That's not his response at all. When they come, let's look again at, uh, look again at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, behold, you have grown old. What a compliment. And your sons do not walk in your ways. That's bitter to the teeth. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Notice here in verse 6, it says, but the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel. In many of your translations, what you're going to find there is, but this thing displeased Samuel. After spending much time studying the word behind that, I think that is rather accurately rendered evil. But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel. When we're displeased, we're not necessarily driven immediately to prayer at all times. But as Christians, as people of the Lord, when we see things that are unrighteous, unrighteous and evil, that pushes us to the Lord. And I really think that translating that word evil gets closer to the heart of what is being communicated in this passage. What the elders asked for drove him to prayer, drove him to his knees. And what was it about their request that distressed him so much? What was it that was so evil? And upon first glance, we may come to this thinking that the fact that they asked for a king is not really that big a deal. You know, but, you know, after all, just a quick survey of the Old Testament kings and what we know about the various monarchies in the world show us that kings do not always act righteously and in the best interest of the people. Yet, 
Was it the fact that they asked for a king that was bad? Was it a problem with the office itself? No, I don't think so. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is what the Lord in His law says about kings. And pay attention to the language. It's going to sound very familiar to you. Verse 14, When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you and possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your brother. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Yahweh has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And he shall, set, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it will be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to carefully observe all the words of his law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his sons in the midst of Israel. So understand this. God would not have written laws associated with an office of a king if he had not, if the office of a king was necessarily bad in and of itself. And so when we see this, when we read this passage of Scripture, we go, okay, they ask for a king like all the nations to judge us. Well, this is what it says. I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Was it that they asked for a king? To get the full picture of what's going on here, we have to finish out our passage of Scripture in verses 7-9. through nine. Look again at 7-9. through nine. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to what they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So now listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly testify to them and tell them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. To understand what is going on here, to understand what was so evil about this, it wasn't because they rejected Samuel. No, no, no. That's not what Samuel was concerned about. He wouldn't have viewed it as evil, them rejecting that. But here we receive the response of God to the prayer. And surprising, the Lord tells Samuel to listen to the requests that the people made. This would have most certainly taken him by surprise, even though the Lord often answers prayer in a way that we don't expect. And the Lord eliminates any doubt for Samuel regarding who is being rejected. It was not Samuel or his decision to set unrighteous judges up as, set his unrighteous sons up as judges that they made this request. It was not that they sought a king. But as the people of Israel had done before, they had rejected the true king. 
for a king of their own making. This people whom God had set His steadfast love upon and delivered them from the chokehold of slavery had once again rejected their only hope against the nations around them for a king that would do what they wanted Him to do. We now begin to see the true nature of the request that the Israel, the elders of Israel make. They want a king that will go before them and fight the battles that they want to fight. They want a king that will serve their own purposes and to be like the nations around them. They wanted a king that was palatable and looked like them rather than the holy king of the universe. They were opportunists. They saw a moment of unrighteous sons. They saw a moment and they seized the opportunity seeking a moment to accomplish their only desire and to usher in what they truly wanted, self-rule. In asking for a king like the nations, they saw that the kings around them controlled their false gods and coerced them into accomplishing the will of the king. This is in contrast to Yahweh, the Lord God who controls kings. And really, if you think about it, the story seemingly obscure to us as just Genesis 3 repackaged. Man once again has sought to exalt himself and reject the only hope that he really does have. If you will for a moment, looking at the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I'm going to read this. Through 25, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Pay attention here. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. When we read this passage, it is almost as if we are reading Paul's commentary on the events of 1 Samuel chapter 8. It is not his commentary on it, but you could think about this passage and see the exchange of events that are happening, and here it is. It is not because they have rejected you, Samuel. It is because they have rejected me. Lest we think about this and look back and we get ready to cast all these stones at the elders of Israel, let us look at our own hearts here. How often have we, seeking to do what is right in our own eyes, cast off restraint to sink a king, a God of our own making, to do our bidding and reject the true king of the universe? And if we're honest, we're far too often like faithless Israel seeking counterfeit kings when the true king of the universe presides on the throne. 
We look around us and see the looming clouds of difficulty on the horizon and we conjure up palatable solutions to ourselves. We do this in the church. We see our numbers beginning to wane and we say, what can we do our church, what, what can we do to grow our church and get more people? In the process we say, let us do as the peoples around us in building our number. All the while rejecting the Lord of the church. Jesus Christ. We do this in our personal lives when we see the looming difficulty and we seek solutions in the advice of the world rather than what God has specifically delivered to us in His Word. So where do we go? Where do you go? When you see the looming clouds on the horizon, will you do what is right in your own eyes? Seek something, a solution of your own making to make things work. Is that your default position? Because really, there are so many things that have to do with all of these things and all, all that comes after chapter 8 here. But the point of this passage, obviously, is to tell us something historically has occurred. But secondarily, what we learn here is something about ourselves. We learn here that our disposition oftentimes is to exchange the truth about God for a lie. Samuel recognized that the thing was evil in his eyes. And he was driven to prayer at the prospect of the fact that the people of Israel wanted a king like the nations. Again, it wasn't the office of king that was a problem. It was the type of king that they wanted. A false, counterfeit king. And that brings us to point number four, Christ, the King of Kings. Unless we fall into despair at the prospect of our sinfulness or even the sinfulness of the elders, we must take heed to the true solution. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. That's the proclamation from the true King. Looming clouds. What is right in our own eyes. The rejection of Yahweh. It's only one solution. Christ. 
We are those who have rejected the King of kings and sought to worship a figment of ourselves rather than submitting to the true and living God. We may have come to our text today and be tempted to think that the problem was that they were asking for a king. This cannot be the case because only the only one who could truly save them was a king. The King Jesus Christ, the sovereign ruler of the universe. This king exchanged his righteous robe for that of a servant. Taking upon himself flesh and humbling himself to the point of death for the people of his own possession. In his humiliation, he becomes exalted and that he was raised from the dead and now continues to reign, having condescended his high position to save a people for himself, having gone from the most glorious place full of majesty to the dirtiest, vilest, nasty place. The true king of the universe does as he pleases, not as we think he ought. And we must ask ourselves, whom will I serve this day? And Christian, when you see the condition of the world, the church, or your home, and you you seek to respond, will you respond in faithfulness to the true king, or will you seek a way of your own making, a way that seems right in your own eyes, a way that looks really palatable to the world? Because... Who will you seek? Who will you seek? If you're not a Christian here this day, will you by God's grace turn from the kingdom of darkness and kiss the Son and take refuge in Him by trusting Him in faith? For as we look around this world and we look at all of the things and the kings and the looming clouds of darkness or the whatever, and we try to come up with these things, don't be tempted to ever think for a moment that the answer is anything other than the Lord. When you kiss the Son today and take refuge in Him, for this King is not like the nations, the kings of the nations. This King does as He pleases and He saves people. And He accomplishes His purpose in this world. Not ours. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to look to You, the true King. Forgive us for those times that we don't look to You. We sink the things that would go the way that we desire them to. And Lord, rather than turning to worldly wisdom, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, let us turn to You and Your Word and seek the true King. And as we continue to study through the book of Daniel, help us to be reminded. It's easy to be reminded when you have a king that doesn't do things the way that you like that You are on the throne. But Lord, help us from being tempted to think that any person or man is going to keep us or save us. Help us to see rightly. We pray all this in Christ's name.
Bien.